Thanks, Clint. I uh, appreciate that very much. If you have your Bibles, turn to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. Um, Paige and I have been spending quite a bit of time with, with Jason and Laura and trying to encourage them in this time of, of turmoil and difficulty that they've been going through. And one of the things that I have been trying to tell him off and on is, you know, dude, I, I love your work ethic. I always have. That's the reason I've hired you about four different times for different kinds of things I was up to. But you need to take a break. And then about uh, June, he emailed me and said, you better be careful what you wish for. What are you doing? Two dates in July. So I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to get to be here. Thrilled to, uh, to know that they're off in Dallas enjoying uh, some teaching from a really good friend of mine and learning about missional church. And I know he's very excited about some of the things he's going to be sharing in the series this fall with each one of you. As, as he describes it over many hours of talking together, uh, he really sees Montgomery at a bit of a crossroads. And I know uh, he shared at length with the elders and some of the leadership. He's very excited to have this time away to really gear up for a very exciting fall, which is part of the reason why I've chosen Joshua chapter one. I didn't do that arbitrarily, but that's what I'm gonna be sharing with you over the next couple of Sundays. Let me go ahead and have another word of prayer before we dive into God's Word. So, Father God, we, we come recognizing that you are sovereign, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that you are the one that fights our battles. You are the victorious one. Father, we also recognize that you called us to be your ambassadors for Christ. You've been asked us to enter into this promise of yours by claiming it. So, Father, bless our time now as we learn more about that promise and more about our role in claiming what you've promised from Joshua 1. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So recently I read uh, about two robberies, robberies that remind me at least one of the reasons why I never chose to go into that profession. Number one, of course, God's not for it. But also, it's not exactly an easy thing to do. I read about one robbery recently attempted at a Burger King in Michigan. And the robber showed up at 7.50 in the morning, unveiled his gun, and said, I want all the money in the register. The person behind the counter looked at him strange and said, there's not a whole lot there yet. And besides, I can't open it unless you order something. He said, all right, all right, I, I want some onion rings. He said, onion rings are not available till 11 a.m. <laughs> at which time the robber stomped out, apparently to go find a restaurant that would serve onion rings at 7.50 in the morning. Read another story about a robber who showed up at a convenience store this time, put a $20 bill on the counter and asked for change. Once the drawer was open, he then revealed the gun and said, I want all the money that is in the cash register. So sure enough, the convenience store owner gave him all the money that was in the cash register, and the robber left. When the cops showed up, there was a smirk on the convenience store manager's face. It said, so why are you smiling? Well, number one, he left the 20 behind with his fingerprints on it. But more importantly, he left a 20 and there was only $15 in the register. 
<laughs> so, so stealing, stealing is, is harder than it looks. So if, if, you're, if you're not demotivated to go into that line of business because God is against it, just know that it's harder than it looks. I think the problem with most believers, though, is, is that we have trouble with, with a different issue. You see, we struggle with taking what is rightfully ours. That's what I want to talk about this morning, is the struggle that we have in taking what rightfully belongs to us. We're not very good at this. The whole book, there's a whole book in the Bible devoted to teaching us how to take what belongs to us, what is rightfully ours, and it's the book of Joshua. And so for this Sunday and next, I want to draw our attention to Joshua chapter 1. Hopefully you have your book, Bible's already open there. Let's read Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from beyond the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. And no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The story of Joshua is all about the people of God who are on the edge of a new era in their history. They're about to move into new territory. Remember, they'd spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt, after which they were released from bondage. They've spent the previous 40 years wandering around in the wilderness. The story of Joshua is about God's people finally laying claim to this promised land, the land of Canaan. Not only do I see your church in this passage as you stand on the cusp about to enter into a, a, a new territory, a, a new season, so to speak, but I also see us as individuals. The story of Joshua is a reminder to each of us that there is more to our relationship with God than simply being delivered from bondage. As incredible as it is to think that God had delivered Israel from 400 years of bondage to the Egyptians, he wasn't simply looking to deliver them from something, but he was also looking to deliver them into something. And I think it's exactly the same with believers. We're the people of God, and as is the case in the beginning of Joshua, we have a story that involves being delivered from our past, being delivered from our sin. But understand that Jesus didn't just come to deliver us from something. He came to deliver us into something. Jesus did not simply die on the cross to save you from your sins. He didn't simply die to save us. He died to change us, to transform us, to make us more into his image. Unfortunately, many believers 
have been so focused on what Jesus did to save them from their past that they forget about their future. They're wandering around in the wilderness year after year. I've been a Christian about 40 years. And I wonder now sometimes, as I studied for this week's message, how much of my life is characterized by, by wandering in the wilderness? Yes, being saved from the bondage of Egypt and sin, but not yet fully embracing all that God would have me embrace in my future. So remember the story of Joshua. Remember what happened in the previous 40 years leading up to this story that we're going to be studying today. God had brought his people right up to the very borders of Canaan and the Jordan River before, haven't they? And then what happened? There were some rumors in the land, right? They sent a few spies in the land and some of them came back and said, no, 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 these people are huge. These are giants. This is going to be tough sledding. I'm not sure that we have the manpower. I'm not sure that we're capable of the warfare required to take this place. And so as a result, they stayed stuck in the wilderness. Their faith gave way to fear. And so they were stuck in between their past in Egypt and their future in Canaan. They're just wandering around in the wilderness. And again, as I, as I look at myself, I wonder how much of that describes me. How much of that describes you? How much of our time do we spend? Yes, saved from sin. Free, no longer in bondage, yet not yet fully entering into the promised land. And when I say promised land, no, I'm not talking about heaven. I know a lot of us sing songs that have to do with the promised land and I sang many of those songs sitting right in this auditorium when I was about that age at TCC. I remember those songs. I remember those songs that talked about crossing over the River Jordan. And I remember those songs that talked about the promised land. But 99 out of 100 times, if I remember back to those songs, when they talked about the promised land, we were talking about what? Heaven. Moving on from this place. I don't think that's what Scripture is limited to. I think there's a way to understand the promised land as a metaphor, not just for the hereafter, but for the here and now. John in particular, the Gospel of John, John is consumed with this idea of ionios, is the Greek word for it. It's translated eternal life in our Scripture. But every time that John talks about eternal life, he's talking about eternal life not starting at the grave. He talks about eternal life, Ionios, is something that starts right now. That the kingdom is present. That the kingdom is breaking out in each one of us. That there is a promised land experience for those who believe and those who follow this side of the grave. And that's what I want us to talk about today. I want us to really wrestle with the question, is the promised land a reality in our lives, this side of the grave? 
I've got a couple more reasons why I don't think promised land should be limited to heaven. Two concerns. Number one, in Joshua, the promised land involved battle, warfare, death, suffering. None of those things are going to happen in heaven. So I don't think the promised land is a very good metaphor for heaven for that reason. The second reason that I believe the promised land is not a very good metaphor for heaven alone is that it sends a message that milk and honey and freedom and victory will only be experienced once one gets to heaven. And while that is true, that's where the fullest manifestation of those things will occur, I happen to believe that those things are available to us this side of the grave. I actually think it's more appropriate to use the term the promised land to refer to the kind of life that is accessible and possible this side of the grave. So I mentioned John and his gospel, his assumptions about Ionios. Let's look at John chapter 10, verse 10. You know this passage well. John writes, I have come, quotes Jesus here, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. In 2 Peter chapter 1, we read similar comments, and I want you to listen to the tense when all of this is occurring. Peter writes, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. All of these verses testify to the fact that the promised land, life abundant, can be accessed and experienced right now. Now, I'm not suggesting that there are not battles to be fought, suffering, illness, death, even in our version of the promised land this side of the grave. But that's why I think the promised land that we read about in Joshua is actually better understood in the context of suffering and difficulty and warfare. More on that toward the end of the sermon today. Here's the bottom line. Many believers, I think, live their lives having had a salvation experience in the past, yet making their home in the wilderness year after year, not tasting much of righteousness and peace and joy and life abundant. So why is that true? Why, why, why do so many of us wallow in the wilderness? Well, perhaps this is one reason why. The first point from Joshua this morning. Any territory that God desires to give us must be taken by us. Look again at Joshua verses 2 and 3, which we just read. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place, what? Where you set your foot. So there's two different times in this passage where God basically says, it's yours. It's a promise. I'm going to give it to you. Twice he says that. But he also has a bit of a condition. 
It's yours. I promise it. But only the places where you set your foot. Remember 40 years earlier, the same promise was available to them. And what did they decide? I don't know that I want to set my foot over there. Too much warfare. The giants are too large. I think I'd rather stay here in the wilderness. I think I'd rather put up with wilderness living. So they chose not to put their foot there. And as a result, God's promise did not occur 40 years earlier. What God gives must be taken. There's a difference between having access to something and possessing something. Through Jesus, we have an intimate relationship with God, which brings with it salvation, but also life, love, joy, peace, righteousness, spiritual authority. Every human being has access to this promised land. But there's a difference between accessing it, having access to it, and accessing it. One has to physically step into it. He'll give you every place that you set your foot. Look at verses 3 and 4, something interesting about this passage. Verses 3 and 4 says, I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the great sea on the west. Anybody seen your footnote? How many square miles was just promised to the people of Israel? 250,000 square miles. 250,000 square miles. Guess how much of that land they possess by the time we get to the end of Joshua? About 10% of it. 25 to 30,000 square miles. Did God lie? Are his promises not true? No, they just chose to set their foot on about 10% of what was promised. I don't know about you, but that's kind of, that's how I think about my Christian life sometimes. That I'm only experiencing about 10% of all that God has for me. 10% of the joy. 10% of the righteousness. 10% of the courage. And why? Not because his promise isn't true, but because I have not yet set my foot there. I've not chosen to take what he has promised. Here's the point I want to make through this, that his promise was in the context of a premise. The promise is related to the degree to which we fulfill the premise to the promise. And it's not until David, the reign of David, that they finally set their foot on all that was promised. It wasn't until King David that they actually have territory numbering 250,000 square miles. I'll give you another example of this premise that determines the nature of the promise. How about Philippians chapter 4? Something from the New Testament, something a little more familiar to you. This isn't just an Old Testament principle I'm describing. I think this idea of the premise leading the promise is even found here in Philippians chapter 4. You know this passage. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, 
will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. How many of you need that promise fulfilled today? How many of you came in here with a little bit of weight on your shoulders? As parents of 18-year-old, 20-year-old, and 8-year-olds, we know a thing or two about that kind of worry. That sometimes it's such a distraction. You come in to worship, and it's hard to worship. It's hard to experience a peace that passes understanding. But that's a promise. Philippians chapter 4. But now look at the premise. Look at verse 6, right before verse 7. Here's the premise. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything. Here's the premise. By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And if you fulfill that premise, then guess what? Here's a promise. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Again, his promise is in the context of a premise. Now, some people, when they hear this, well, then does that mean I'm, I'm earning it? I mean, is the promise truly a promise if I've, I've got to earn it? I don't think you're having to earn the promise. So let me give you a, a, an illustration some of you have had the unfortunate situation of having a loved one, a spouse, someone close to you, maybe a parent, who dies. And they left you an inheritance. They promised you through a will that you would receive something from them, a free gift now, any of you that have been through that know that by the time the state and the federal government gets through negotiating and discussing these issues with you, and depending upon the nature of the will, there's a lot of work that goes through settling a state. How many of you know the work associated with settling an estate, right? Now, you say, that was a lot of work, but that, does that mean it's any less of a gift? You see, sometimes the gift is just that. It's a gift. It's a promise. But there's a little bit of work, a little bit of effort. We've got to take what is promised. And if we're not willing to do a little bit of work, filing the paperwork, talking to the lawyers, going to the meetings, then we never really receive all that is promised us. So do we earn our inheritance? No. But we do have to take what is given. I think it's the same way with Christians. But I think that's why so many wilderness Christians struggle year after year, failing to experience the promises of God because they failed to walk out the premises of the God, of God. He'll give you every place you set your foot. But you're responsible for where you set your feet. What God gives must be taken. And that leads me to a second revelation from Joshua, and then we'll be done today and save the rest for next week. And that is this, that the taking will involve some warfare. The taking will involve some warfare. Read Joshua this week, and you'll see that just because God had promised didn't mean that it was going to be easy. 
He promised every place where you set your foot. But you see, there's some enemies standing in the way. Brothers and sisters, we have an enemy standing in the way, prowling like a lion. He knows that he's already lost. He knows how it ends. Calvary, which we're about to celebrate, is the real deal, folks. But in the interim, the enemy wants to see how many of his followers he can get to fearfully live wilderness lives. So he puffs himself up. He turns into a big giant. I don't know what the giants are in your life. I don't know whether it's health-related, whether it's family relationships. Maybe it's a marriage that is in disrepair. But some of you know what I'm talking about. You know that the enemy uses people and circumstances to try to get you to fearfully stay in the wilderness. In order to set our feet everywhere where God has promised, we've got to be willing to endure some warfare. As is the case in the book of Joshua. Sometimes the resistance comes from forces outside of us. And sometimes it's forces that come from inside of us. What Paul described as the flesh. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I want to stop doing, those things I keep doing, Romans 7. This is a spiritual battle. Taking will involve some warfare. But please understand, it doesn't change your covenant relationship. I'm not telling you that you need to be willing to battle and to go to war with the enemy in order to keep your identity in Christ. There was nothing that the Israelites were doing, even in the 40 years wandering the wilderness, that changed one bit about their identity. Amen? That was a covenant relationship. So there's no amount of effort and striving and taking and stepping that is going to functionally change your relationship with Jesus. Amen. You and I are saved by grace through faith and not by works that we should boast. But what I'm talking about, though, is whether we step into all that God has offered us as his followers. That's going to involve some warfare. I heard a sermon recently that's reminded us that this is not a battle of flesh and blood from Ephesians 6, right? This is a spiritual battle against the powers and against the rulers. And where there is a spiritual battle, we need to use spiritual weapons. So that's how we're going to finish today. One of the most important spiritual weapons we have available to us is prayer. So we're going to spend a few minutes in prayer before the praise team continues to lead us during the prayer time. And I want you to be ready to prayerfully confess, acknowledge. That's all it means to confess. Confess simply means to acknowledge that what God says is true. So in this extended time of quiet, first of all, I want, I want, you, to, I want you to just confess with the Lord that you believe that this is true. That you've not only been saved from something, but you've been saved to something. 
And if it fits, confess and acknowledge that you've yet to receive all that he has promised. And maybe only 10% of what he is offering you has actually been taken by you. The cool thing about confession is that actually turns prayer loose. Remember James 5? If we confess, if we confess, we will be heard. The Lord wants a people to confess that what he is saying is true. And in that context, our prayers will be heard at an even greater level. I don't, I don't understand that. That'll take a whole other sermon or maybe two or three to totally unpack that. But there's something, according to James 5, about confession that turns the power of prayer loose. So in this time of quiet, it's a time of confession. Just private reflection and confession just between you and the Lord. And also a time of prayer. And maybe one of the things you're confessing is that you're not experiencing the promised land, this side of the grave. You are operating in wilderness. And one of the ways that you know you're operating in wilderness is because you came in here worried about something. And even though there is a promise that the peace of God which transcends understanding will guard your hearts and minds of Jesus Christ, you didn't come in here walking in that truth. In which case, in this time of prayer, what are we going to do? We're going to live out the premise. And you remember the premise? What's the premise to that promise? Don't worry about anything, but what? Pray about everything. With prayer and petition. This is your time to say, Lord, I need you to solve this. Oh, but not just pray and prayer and petition, but also with what? With thanksgiving. You know what? You, you and I have got a lot to be thankful for. About the time that I get so wrapped up and so worried about something my 18-year-old is doing, i got to remember, you know what, i got a lot to be thankful for. Maybe you come in here worried about your marriage. Spend some time in the next few minutes thanking God for your spouse. So, oh, you don't know my spouse. You know what? <laughs> I am convinced that there is some redeeming quality about every person if you and I choose to step into it. Allow the Holy Spirit to change your mindset. So time of prayer, time of confession, time of thanksgiving, time of petition. I want us to use this time to do some spiritual warfare so that you and I can experience all the promised land, this side of the grave that the Lord has promised. So Father God, as we begin this time of silence and reflection, we invite you into this place. We invite, Holy Spirit, you to come and to give us utterance. You tell us in your word, you promise us in your word that there are times where we don't even know the words to speak, but deep calls to deep. So Father, use these next few minutes. Hear our confession. Hear our petition. Hear our thanksgiving. Help us to experience more of your promised land in these next few minutes. In Jesus' name.